Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Well, after a long hiatus, we are back and ready again to look into and explore another biblical passage. Our goal is to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. As we start again with the podcast, we will be looking into the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 and 12. Today, we will look more at faith and things hoped for and things not seen, as Hebrews 11.1 puts it. Faith, anticipation, confidence, these terms fit together and are the amazing privilege of the believer as it relates to our future. So let's ponder some of those things that are hoped for and things not seen, and then marvel at how we can have utmost assurance of all of those things coming to pass. Well, to begin, let's briefly be reminded of some of the context of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, as you know, was written by an unknown author. We don't know who it is, uh, but to Christians who were Jews, who were living in Jerusalem, uh, probably in the 65 AD range or somewhere in there, uh, but before 70 AD. And these Christians were really having a hard time of it by way of persecution and pressures from their family members and fellow Jews in the city of Jerusalem who had a very negative view of the people of the way, the Christians that uh, had adopted Jesus or accepted Jesus as their Messiah. So if the pressure got to be so severe that some Christians were even starting to throw in the towel and say, hey, this isn't worth it, man. I, I didn't sign up for this. This is terrible. Uh, and they started drifting away and drifting back, going even back into the temple worship and going back into the the uh, feasts and the sacrifices, etc., of Judaism at the temple. And so the writer of Jerusalem wants, or of Hebrews rather, wants to uh, talk to these believers in Jerusalem and remind them, first of all, that Jesus is better and that what they have in Jesus Christ is better. <clears throat> he is, as chapter 2 he begins, he's superior to the angels. He is superior to Moses. He's of a higher priesthood than the Mosaic or the Aaronic priesthood. His sacrifice was superior even uh, to the Day of Atonement or the high priest sacrifices and the animal sacrifices, etc. So he's saying in this book, he's logically portraying how Christ is better than all that they had. It's like what they have is a picture of of someone important in their wallet. That's what the uh, uh, the religion is. That's what Judaism is. It's a picture of something that's that that, that that's real but not in that photo and Jesus is what is real he's the person he's the reality so don't go back to the picture enjoy stay faithful uh, and cling to Jesus Christ 
So don't go back. And then he also, along this, uh, as he's doing this, he has a variety of warning passages, about five of them, and in those warning passages, he has some pretty specific words of correction to these readers as well. And so we get to chapter 10 of Hebrews chapter 10, and he's finishing here uh, and on this chapter about how Jesus is a better sacrifice. In the first half, he's showing how he's a better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Those sacrifices were merely a shadow. Uh, they could never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, his blood, his sacrifice, has forever taken away sins. And through him and through his sacrifice and through what he did, it opens up a whole new access to us, the writer is saying. And we can now enter into the holiest of holies, thinking of that uh, uh, Jewish temple as that an example, and how we then have a new and living way, because we have a different high priest. We have Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, and through him we have direct access, etc., so as he closes out chapter 10, he goes into one of his, his uh, a warning passage then, as he just says, uh, reminding them that, look, you don't want to go back into Judaism. You're going to go back into physical danger, for there's coming judgment upon that generation. And it would even be insulting the spirit of grace by going back to sacrifices when Christ was the final sacrifice. He encourages them to recall the former days. Remember when they hung in there, when they had it so difficult, but they hung in there and they did it with joy. So he wants to encourage them to have endurance, and then he ends the chapter by quoting Habakkuk, which is an Old Testament prophet who actually was in a similar context. He was saying, how long, Lord, before you come and judge this this people, this wicked generation and unfaithful uh, covenant people? And, and, uh, and so he is told that the just shall live by faith. And then the writer of Hebrews ends chapter 10, verse 39, by saying, and we are of those who believe. So he's writing to his readers, assuming that, you know, they haven't gone back, they're still there, so they are of those who believe, they are of faith. And so we get to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. We read, Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Starts with the word now, which is a conjunction. It has nothing to do with time. It's just indicating a new step in the flow of thought here. But what's interesting is the word is actually is the first word after now in the word order, which means it has an emphatic placement in Greek. And that would carry the idea of spotlighting the existence of faith, is faith. So that is carrying right over from 1039 when he was saying to his readers, hey, we are of those who believe. We are of faith. So he wants to put that faith front and center and then begin to say some things about it. He's going to say it's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Before we look into that, let's quickly define and remind ourselves what is faith. Faith is from the Greek word pistis, and pistuo is the verb, and faith means to be persuaded so as to trust. It involves reliance and trust as a result of being convinced. And so the idea here is uh, with the Bible, it's faith is in God, and the value of our faith is in the object of our faith. So here we are putting our emphasis on the object of God, his character, his words, his acts, all that he is. He's a persuader. And he's a persuader, which means he's active and he's engaging and he's demonstrating who he is and what he's about. And he's seeking to persuade you and me so that we'll we will then trust him take him at his word and then have confidence in what he's saying. He does this persuasion, we know, like through general revelation, Romans 1 talks about uh, the external creation, the created world and its order and design that speaks of a creator, 
and then we know uh, he also has specific revelation of the Word of God, and he's revealed himself mightily through scriptures, through words and sentences and concepts and stories, and so that we can be uh, have so much to ponder and consider and hear about him and what he's done, and that then his drawing us, convincing us, wanting to persuade us in that supernatural way. So faith is active. It's never static or passive because God is uh, is, a, is a living God, and his word is living and alive and, and powerful, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us. So there's movement then with faith in our thinking, and it's movement toward God, toward what he has said and who he is, or even his promises, and we're pondering them, and we're allowing God to persuade us and convince us. So God says stuff, and we are, uh, as we consider what he says, we become persuaded by it, and then we trust God in it. Now, the two words that are used here are substance and things hoped for. Uh, Excuse me, substance and evidence. And substance here is a noun, and it's carrying the idea uh, how it's used in 3.14 in Hebrews. It says, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, that's the same word. So we can see that it's the idea of like faith is the realization. It's the confidence of things hoped for. And what are those things? They're modified by hoped for, which means obviously things in the future. We're looking forward. Faith is looking forward to things that we have a confidence and a hope of them coming to pass. And hope in the scriptures is never, I hope I win the lottery or things like that. It's a confident expectation. It's an assumed reality and we're just waiting for it to happen. So that's the substance. It's this confidence or it's this realization of things hoped for. And that's the same similar idea of evidence. Evidence, though, carries the idea also of like conviction, uh, meaning there's been a persuasion. And again, Again, it's here the things are things that are not yet seen. Uh, think of Noah in Hebrews eleven seven. That word is used there when it says Noah was warned of things not yet seen, and moved with godly fear, he went about and he built an ark. What was not yet seen? Well, he had not yet seen a flood. Some think even rain at that point. And so uh, things not yet seen, but he was persuaded and he understood he's to go out and do build of an ark, etc. And this was clearly then by faith, being convinced of God and His words. The New American Standard summarizes verse one, or translates verse one well when it says, "Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, you could say, the confidence of things not seen." A living faith that has a living hope, so real that it gives certainty of things hoped for, future things. We start to think what future things on the other side of death, things we read about in the Scripture, things yet to come, things like the rapture. The bodily, our bodily resurrection and glorification. No sin nature, ever. Imagine that. Face to face with the Lord, personal. All that worship that's going on in heaven that's described in Revelation 4 and 5 and these massive choirs and songs and the glory there. Great reunions as we see loved ones and friends that are in the other side of eternity. We have the victorious return of Jesus Christ and the King of Kings and a millennial kingdom of righteousness. And we see then the permanent uh, end of Satan and all evil as he's separated and cast into the lake of fire. And we see there's new heavens and new earth, a new Jerusalem and eternal joy forever. And as believers, we learn of these things, and we hear of them, and we read them in the Word of God, and we're comforted by these truths, and we have such anticipation of their fulfillment. It's awesome, and it's forever. And it's not just some wish. It's a confident expectation. That's what faith is, a confident expectation, that hope. We faith, we see that. It's an unseen reality that we see by the eye of faith. And we have certainty, and we're full of assurance, and it actually is designed to motivate us. 
So faith is a sure and certain conviction then regarding all of these things, to be certain of all of these things as if we saw them. And so for the believer, when asked about these things, these future things, the other side of eternity, man, we have tremendous confidence that they're going to be uh, real and that they're a reality that we're looking forward to and we're waiting for. On a scale of 1 to 10, my confidence in that is over at a 10. Why do we have this? Because we've been persuaded. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, the truth of God, the character of God, been persuaded by the trustworthiness of God and His ability and His intentions. And we, we've seen that. We are so sure of that. And we are trusting and knowing that this will happen. And so we're convinced, we're persuaded, and so we have assurance. And so how important it is to have an understanding of eternal security in our belief system, to know that when we're saved, that that's a sure thing, that we're good to go, that everything that was a barrier, a hindrance to our eternal life or going to heaven or being forgiven, that's all been accomplished. It's finished. Because, you see, we look in the Scriptures, and yes, we can see that we're sinners, all of us. I mean, we've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God, as the Bible says. So how can we deny the anger or resentment or jealousies or selfishness and just meanness and lusts and pride that lies within us? Can't even begin to cover all that up. It's reality, and it exposes us. And yes, we also see how God is the opposite. I mean, he's completely holy, perfectly righteous, pure, without sin. He's clean, we are unclean. He's pure, we are sinful. He's just, we're guilty. So we see then this righteousness of God that is, is, would condemn us. But he's also a God we see in the scriptures unfolding that he's good and he's love. He's love and he's mercy and he's gracious. And we see then in his intention, he wants everyone to be saved. He's offering eternal life. His desire is for all to come to the knowledge of him, to have escape from our guilt, to have sin removed, to have eternal life and be with him and of him forever. And so how does that happen? We keep reading and we see how Jesus comes, the incarnate God, come to live amongst us, living a holy life, and then dying, however, dying unjustly. But it's actually the supreme act of justice. Because on him, on that cross, he didn't deserve to be there, but all of our sins were laid upon him, every last one. He owned them all. He took them all upon himself. He was fully aware of all of your sins, every last one, even future ones that you don't even know about yet. We don't even see what's coming. And he's already seen it. And he's already said, it's taken care of. I've paid for it. He took them on as if they were his. He suffered the consequences. And we know the penalty of sin is death, which is exactly what he went through, which is separation from God, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He was separated from them. This eternal fellowship was broken as sin was put upon him. The just for the unjust. And just before he died, he cried out, it is finished. Paid in full accomplished. So we read this, we see this, we see then the heart of God as it is demonstrated at Calvary, as God demonstrates his love toward us and that Christ died for us. We see then that he says that he so loves the world that he, that, uh, that he gave his only begotten son. He put sin upon him and made him sin for us so that now, John three sixteen, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
Whoever is persuaded by this love, persuaded by Jesus who came and died for us and did that personally for you and me, whoever is persuaded by this one righteous act of Jesus Christ that satisfies all the justice of God as he threw down on Jesus the fullness of his holiness and his righteousness and his anger but for sin, and he has completely been propitiated and satisfied with the payment of sin that Christ made on behalf of the whole world, including you and me. And when whoever is persuaded by this and believes has eternal life, whosoever believes in him has eternal life right now, and better, will not perish. So it's guaranteed, it's promised, and it's delivered. It's a stated fact. The content of of uh, of this the, the reason this fact is true is because Jesus died and was rose again. And he's now a victorious Savior, and he defeated death and sin. So our faith being persuaded, our confidence in these scriptures, in this message of Christ, is in this promise, means we'll never have the second death, we'll never perish, we'll never be separated. So through that man's righteous act, the Bible says, the free gift is available to all. Just like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Isn't that amazing? Salvation is a gift. This is all a gift, not secured or paid for by our works, but secured and paid for by his work because he's holy and he's blameless and he's pure. And he then can be our substitute, the just for the unjust, as the Bible says. And we can have then the free gift of eternal life based on what he has done. And it is finished. So just be reminded that God created you. He created you to be loved, to stand in a perfect relationship with him and a union with Christ, to be known and loved and accepted, and you're fully forgiven there and you have eternal life forever. And are you persuaded? Boy, I sure hope you're persuaded by the love of God for you. It was all for you, all for me. And it breaks down the wall of separation that was between us and a holy God, and he opens the way and we go through by faith. And so when you talk to believers who know this and are saved and have put their faith in Christ and know they uh, have eternal life and will not perish, man, we're brimming with confidence that these future things, the resurrection and the glorification and the millennial kingdom and all these future new heavens and new earth, man, on a scale of 1 to 10, our confidence, our anticipation for that is maxed out at 10. Because God said it and he promised it and Jesus, he is that good. So it's that sure and it's finished. So faith in his confidence in regard to all the glorious things hoped for, which as far as we and our experience of them are concerned, they, they, of course, they lie in the future. So I sure hope you have this confidence about your eternal destiny. It's why he came. It's why Jesus died. It's why he's resurrected. It's why it's called good news, and it's to be embraced by faith. But now let's apply this future uh, to even our time here on earth, these hoped-for things. Because nothing in by application limits these future certain things that we have a confidence in and these unseen things to the other side of death. They can be in things on this side of death, in our future here on earth as well. Like what? Well, they could be in spiritual growth and maturity. Philippians 1.6 reminds us that we can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Until the day of Christ. That means between now and the day we, the die, we die or are raptured. 
So it's our future here on this side of eternity. And we can be confident that God is at work. In fact, he says a few verses later, and this I pray, Paul says, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, and that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. That's the kind of things, that sanctification that God is working and will do from now until the day of Christ. We know from the scripture that God, his desire is to conform us into the image of his son. Romans 8, 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God foreknew us, our faith in him. Predestined here is not about going to heaven or hell. It's a predestined, a predetermined destiny that we will be conformed to the image of his son and we will be at glorification, all of us that are saved. So what about between now and then? Is not God working and, and progressively working and conforming us to the image of Son now, of his Son now? Ephesians 4.13 would answer that emphatically, yes. He mentions here about the, the, the different teachers and spiritual gifts and things that are all designed for us to, to um, be able to do the work of the ministry and be equipped. Until, verse 13, we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, a com- complete or mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How do we know we're a full man or a perfect or mature? We're measured by the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our relationship with him, our walk with him, are we are progressing in growth and with him, intimacy with him, becoming more like him by the Spirit of God. It's amazing. And so the verse goes on to say well, that we should no longer be children. Well, that means immature. We are that way when we're tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But instead, speaking the truth in love, may grow up and all things into him, all the things of, about him and into him who's the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effect of working, by which every part does its share, every part of the body, and it causes growth of the body, for the edifying of itself in love. So we see here progression and growth and maturity individually and even corporately. And so this would be then as we're growing in spiritual maturity and God is working in us, this would pre- pre- uh, assume or, uh, uh, that we have a closer walk with him, that we have an intimate relationship with Christ. And as we're abiding in him, he's bearing fruit, we're bearing fruit uh, and so forth. And this is all in our future. This is what God wants to do. And how is he going to do it? He's busy. He's working. Notice a string of some verses and promises here that are so encouraging on this. How does this happen? How does, why can I have faith in this future, in this, on this side of eternity? How can I then say that uh, my, my faith is the substance of things hoped for and those things hoped for are my sanctification even here on earth? Well, because Philippians 2 reminds us here in verse 11 that every tongue one day will confess that Jesus is Christ and the glory of God the Father. So we see this glorified Christ in this sense, and we will confess that. And Therefore, he says, in light of that, my beloved, so he's talking to believers, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, why the fear and trembling? Because he just left us at the foot of Christ in his glorified state and every knee confessing. So there's tremendous awe and reverence here. But we work out our salvation. But notice verse 13, how does that happen? For it is God who works in you. And what does he accomplish? To will, desire, and to do ability of his good pleasure. He gives you the, 
desires and the abilities for what is his good pleasure. And he's doing that. Hebrews 13.21, uh, the writer of Hebrews in his benediction says, May God make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is going to work out in our lives here on earth that which is well-pleasing to him. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. And who's doing those works? God is able to make that grace abound to you, the sufficiencies of him. We see as well in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, where he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable surface. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In verse 2, he's got two imperatives, but they're passive, which means how do you fulfill a passive imperative? How, you have to let someone else do it. So it's really, he's saying, let yourself not be conformed to this world. Let yourself be transformed. Well, who's bringing the transformation? Who's bringing that slow change? That's the Spirit of God. That's God. That's the supernatural work of him. And so we see he's working, he's transforming, and that emphasized finally again or again in 2 Corinthians three seventeen through 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. But we all with unveiled face, not with the law, is the idea there, beholding as in a mirror. Notice we're looking at something. We're beholding the glory of the Lord. While we're doing that, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. God is working, transforming, changing, working in you. There is all faith is to have the substance of these things hoped for, and, and it's the evidence of these things not seen. Why can't we have that? It's just like we believe in the resurrection and and. Uh, the new Jerusalem and have the new heavens and new earth, we can also have full confidence and believe in this because this is God's will. He is able. This is what he's telling us he wants to do. This is all there. And we take this in. What an amazing promise. Everything that is but pleases him by his power, it's, it's, it's his working. It brings his glory. It's all him. And he will do this. He's patiently at work doing this. That's love. That's persistence. No wonder we're to be confident that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. How? Well, God's doing that. But then there's our part. And we want to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look, the new Jerusalem, the resurrection, bodily resurrection, the rapture, these things are happening because we don't have anything to do with it. It's all, the fix is in. It's all stated. God's doing it. I have 100% certainty. But this sanctification thing, no, no, no. I know that I have to also have faith or cooperate or whatever. And so, therefore, I have to be willing to let him do it. And so that becomes a, a barrier for us. But first, let's take a look at a positive example. When we think of faith, faith means our eyes are on him. We're convinced and persuaded of what he said and what he's going to do. And we're reminded of this with Mary, Luke chapter 1, the mother of Jesus. We know in the Christmas story, the angel appeared to her, said, you're pregnant by the means of the Spirit of God, and you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. And the angel said to her, before he, as he's explaining this, he said, And having come in, Luke one twenty eight, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Highly favored one. 
Ah, see, that's just Mary. She had this advantage. She was highly favored. But wait a minute, that extends to us all, because in Ephesians 1, 6, where Paul is talking to believers in Christ about some of their blessings, he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. And accepted in the Greek is the same word as highly favored. We could read it, by which he made us highly favored in the beloved. So we are highly favored. And so, like Mary, who who was told, rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you, we can realize we also are the highly favored one. Well, what did that do for Mary? We know that she believed the angel. She believed that against all odds. And no one, you know, everyone probably just, uh, you know, um, ostracized her. But she ends up being with her cousin Elizabeth, the one person who could no one understand her. They enjoy fellowship and friendship there. And Elizabeth, her testimony in Luke one forty five of Mary is, Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. What did Mary do? She believed by faith. So we see there's faith, and then Mary, right after that, begins in Luke one forty six her Magnificat, this beautiful song that starts with, My soul magnifies the Lord. And in verse 49, a few verses into that, she says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Who did it? He who is mighty has done great things for you. Why will that not be true of you and I? when he's promised to do great things within us and through us as he will sanctify us and conform us into the image of Christ, being confident of this very thing, he will begin a good work in us, he'll finish it. But then our protest, right? But, 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 I, I, that, I'm weak, I fail, I don't have the confidence, I don't, I, I'm inconsistent, in fact, I just get distracted and I'm so discouraged and I just spin my wheels and other people seem to get it. I never, just stop. And ask yourself, who are you looking at right now? Eyes are on where? And they're on yourself. They're on us. This isn't faith. Or it is faith, but it's in the wrong object. It's not the object of God who said and pledges and promised and is able. So when we put them on ourselves, we then get into our own performance and our own expectations of trying to fulfill things and doing things. And of course that's frustrating. You know, I use that, you know, it's kind of a, you know, a, Gross illustration, maybe, but just think of a big, big room, and on one end of the room, um, there's uh, a pile of feces that that you put there because, this, and you just stare at it, and you go, "I'm such a failure. I'm so bad. I did this again. I keep doing this. I just, oh, ah," and you're so discouraged. On the other end of the room, though, there's a massive wall full of flowers and bouquets of tremendous color and various smells, and it's beautiful. What are you going to focus on? What are you going to stare at? If we stay looking at our mess, that's a self-focus. The flowers would be a Christ focus. One is reasoning from ourself outward horizontally and what I am about and what I do or don't do. The other is starting with God and vertically coming down upon us with what he says, who we are, what we're like, and what he has promised in doing. I want to go look at those flowers. I can choose what I dwell on. I can choose what I think. Let's think upon truth and the real reality. This is what God says about us. That's why he says in John 15, abide in me, remain, stay, continue. Eyes on him and evaluate him, consider him, look at him, depend on him, and abide in him. And we will not be discouraged with eyes on him. The flowers are just amazing. Back in Philippians 2, though, here's a little encouragement. When he said, work out your own salvation, 
Uh, Warren Worsby tells us how that word workout can be used as an agricultural term even, like cultivate, to till up, to turn over the soil. Cultivate, bring about. And so think about a field where you cultivate and turn over soil. Then what? Then this miracle happens where after the seed is our planted, there's life, there's germination and life and growth and fruit. What do we do? Cultivate, think. We can choose what we want to dwell on. And so... Every time we start, look in the mirror, whatever, and say, but, but I, I am so, I am no good. I just can't do this. I just always fail and I just can't stop this or start that. You know, that's an okay place to start in that thinking, I guess, because there's some honesty there and there's humility, but it's a terrible place to continue and to abide. You never want to end there. Faith is never static. It's living, it's vibrant, and it's active, and it wants to move in our thinking toward God move in our mindset toward him and abide there. Get over to those flowers. This is where you want to end. So bring your thoughts into union with a real reality and a real truth. I can't, but he can. He does. He will. And I can be confident in that as I take by faith all that he says about me and himself and our relationship and promises and I can get my eyes on him and just be overwhelmed by his glory and it never stops he never stops working and he's never turning his back on us so then we have confidence this is faith like the new american standard said again faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen we can have the assurance of our future sanctification, the assurance of things not seen, the conviction that he's going to do it. And it's not just your glorification or your home in heaven or the new heavens, not just that, but our progressive growth and maturing here on this side of eternity on earth. And he is able and he's working, so may we be persuaded. Eyes on him and let him do this. Notice those verses that say he's working, he's working, he will do this. And when we have our thoughts there, he's working, he's doing it. And we can just transfer our thinking and our, by faith, move in our mind to things that are true of him. Especially when we're down or discouraged. Think about things that are unconditional that apply to you. Thinking of the hymn, dying with Jesus, uh, moment by moment. You know, we can enjoy Jesus moment by moment. And that song, moment by moment, says, dying with Jesus by death reckoned mine, living with Jesus a new life divine, looking to Jesus till glory doth shine. Moment by moment, O Lord, I am thine. Moment by moment, I'm kept in his love. Is that true? Moment by moment, I have life from above. That's true. Looking to Jesus till glory does shine. That's what we'll do. Moment by moment, O Lord, I am thine. So may we be quick to go there in our thinking. Not, will I ever get it? Will I ever change? Why am I so slow? Others do better. I never, I'm so bad. I did this. I shouldn't have done that. That's just noisy navel-gazing. And it puts this heavy cloak on us, like this layers of heavy coats that we keep putting on ourselves, and it's just miserable. Or it's creating bummer clouds that hover over us. How to be away with this is by faith, and to move in your mind, not the things of you, but to the things of Christ. The things of you might be true. It's all probably true. We all are failures, but there's unconditional truth about God who never changes and promises and the flowers, etc. And just move there in our mind and feed on his faithfulness. You know, David, as I finish now in the Old Testament, our last verse, he was uh, not a perfect man. I mean, he did some good, a lot of good act, you know, but he uh, had some real blowouts. 
But boy, his relationship with the Lord is seen over and over, especially in the Psalms, and his heart is revealed. So let's close with his words in Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. And the New American Standard has it as, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. How many promises did we just see? He's not going to forsake that work. He will accomplish that which concerns you. Eyes on him. Just rejoice in the everlasting, positional, unconditional truths. Even if you've been whatever you've been. Moved by faith to him. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for who you are, your steadfastness. You're always the same, always good, always reliable. And we're so glad, Father, you are constantly persuading us. For the unbeliever, for those who don't know for sure they have eternal life, may you be able to persuade them of this amazing love that's already been demonstrated and that at the cross one can have life and have it forever through faith in Christ who loved them and died for them and is risen again. May they be persuaded. And for us, Father, may we as believers who are listening, may we be persuaded as well by your truth and promise. In our sanctification, we can say, man, that's something we, I have hope for. And I am becoming convinced of these things yet not seen. So we just look forward to that. And of course, of course, the other side of eternity, how amazing that will be. And it's all by grace. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Well, thanks for listening again, and we hope to continue in Hebrews 11 next time. And uh, just want to remind you, like I like to do, where the Spirit of God is, there is always 